for every cold play, there's 10 other cold plays that all got signed in the same year. You know, yeah, there's a lot of broken dreams in the business. I was nowhere. You know, I had, I'd lost my record deal, massively in debt, and no obvious signs that I would ever be able to recover that, you know, because the career looked to be pretty much finished. We didn't have that such a big launch pad as maybe some of our bands did at the time, but we're still here, so we did something right. You know, I came from Patti Smith, who from day one said, I am an artist. And I would say, we, we are artists, and we make music that we consider to be art. I spent 10 years of my life with no money. Trying to get a record deal was so I was my own boss and I could do what I want. This seemed to be my natural comfort zone. There is no formula to having a hit record. It happens and it's probably 60% luck, 30% talent, and 10% timing. I think the idea is to remain yourself, but stay open to being influenced. Hello and welcome to The Art of Longevity. I'm your host, Keith Joplin. Brett Anderson of Suede once said that all successful artists have navigated four career stages. The struggle, the stratospheric rise to the top, the crash to the bottom, and the renaissance. On The Art of Longevity, we talk to artists who spent decades in the music industry and discover what the journey has been like for them and how have they experienced each of Brett's four stages. Along the way, there are some great stories of the ups and downs and the roundabouts of a career in music, insights for fans and aspiring musicians. This is The Art of Longevity. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the renowned British premium audio brand. Neil Hannon of The Divine Comedy, welcome to The Art of Longevity, Neil. How are you? Thank you very much, Keith. I am well. Very pleased to be asked to be on. Thank you. Feeling suitably longevitous? I am the, one of the most longevitated <laughs> pop people around. So, uh, you know, I think it's only right. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, really looking forward to exploring it. Because, I mean, everyone's unique, but I have to say there's some elements of your career story I'm particularly looking forward to. But let's just start with right now, because you're you're about to go back on tour, aren't you? Yes, actually, this is the halfway break between the European leg, uh, continental European, and uh, the UK and Ireland, which starts next Monday. So I am actually having a lovely two-week break. I uh, sort of wrote this into the schedule when they were preparing the tour because I can't do it all in one go anymore. You know, I'm 51. I, I need a break in between. Well, part of longevity, I guess, just conserving the energy. Yes, it's weird. You know, things that sort of came easily in the old days, like having a few drinks after a gig. Suddenly, if you do that and you don't go straight to bed, then the next day, the gig seems much harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess, you know, getting a good night's sleep and all those things, much more important these days than it was back in the day. Yes, and like every member of the band has a, a weird uh, health issue or <laughs> a, a very specific dietary concern. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, you get to a certain age and there's always something. Yeah, yeah. But how much are you enjoying the live aspect of what you do these days? I love it. I really do. 
in many ways, because the sort of partying has decreased on tour, the, the enjoyment of, of the show itself has multiplied. I can't wait to get on stage these days. It's like the most fun in my life. <laughs> well, also the kind of music that you're performing on stage, I mean, there's no end to when you can keep on doing that because it's sort of quite dignified in a sense. I know you are playing those pop hits, but there was always a certain classic flavor to those pop hits and the arrangements and all of that. So that feels like something you could get more out of these days than you could as a younger person. It's funny you should say that because I have felt like uh, there's quite a few of the old songs that, that sound better now than they did back then because I, I kind of understand what I was driving at better now, you know, with like 30 years more musical knowledge. I always had sort of tastes for musical genres that maybe weren't run of the mill and um, they all sort of worked their way into the music. And that's never changed. Uh, so the music has seemed, I suppose, slightly other, you know, over the years. And and so if it doesn't exist very, in, you know, in a very sort of limited flavor of the month kind of way, then it makes it easier to play sort of over the long term and it, it, it doesn't date as much. Yeah, yeah. Because it was dated when I brought it out. <laughs> <laughs> but timeless, let's say. Mm. Well, with a charmed life, so celebrating 30 years, putting that compilation together, are there particular songs this time around that stood out for you? There were songs that I thought, wow, we actually recorded that really well. The recording aspect of the music was always sort of a few sort of priorities down the list for me. It was all about the notes and the, the words. I felt like they obviously hadn't paid much attention to recording quality in the early 60s, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so why should I? As it turns out, it's slightly more important than I thought. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, it's the differences in, in the quality of uh, and how well we sort of brought the vision to life. So things like uh, songs that people might not know very well, like Have You Ever Been In Love from Bangos The Nighted, which I think is probably the best performed and recorded song in my entire catalogue. And I never really noticed at the time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, silly things like that. And it's a beautiful package that you've put together, like you know, with the vinyl. Yeah, they asked us what color the vinyl should be before we even got to the, uh, the, the packaging and the photographs because you have to try and get your order in for the vinyl so, so soon because it's such a backlog. I thought, uh, gold and silver, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then it ended up not really matching the cover of the album at all. But I don't, I don't care. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. I did think as well, it's sort of, I wonder, is there a code here? Did you put your very favorite songs on the gold? No, <laughs> no, no. no. You're uh, reading just, too much just into kidding. this. No. <laughs> I mean, how do you feel about the vinyl resurgence now? Because it was never a thing, of course, back when you were sh selling shed loads of CDs in the 90s. Vinyl was nowhere. I know, I know. There was a constant, constant question whenever we were making a new record shall we bother with the vinyl this time, you know? And gradually it just became completely 
unnecessary. And, you know, then there was about four albums that didn't come out on vinyl. And then all of a sudden, you've got to make vinyl. <laughs> you know? it, it's weird. I'm sure there are some clever people who saw it coming, but uh, I know we didn't. <laughs> yeah, I think I did see it coming, but I wasn't brave enough to kind of step into a deal to buy a factory. <laughs> you know, that would have been really seeing it coming. Yeah, totally. I, I think it's wonderful. I, I do believe that vinyl sounds better than CDs in terms of just the sound of the actual format rather than sort of how well it brings the original sort of, you know, how accurate it is to the original. That's to me, not much of a concern. I, it's all about sort of how it makes you feel. And if vinyl makes you feel sort of warm and cozy, then that's the better format. Even if it crackles a bit and jumps around. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely. does. I have to say it's transformed my listening in recent years, but it does come with a certain guilt, which I wish I could sort of get rid of what does that well uh, the, the whole sort of plastic and packaging and the weirdness in a way oh, that music yeah. has become a product again because for a while i mean in the streaming era it just the whole product side of music just disappeared completely well try and think of it this way that certainly what i do is i i stream constantly i'm afraid and that's not just hay fever <laughs> um i uh, i love the idea that i can sort of hear about a certain artist and instantly find them, you know, just like uh, I know twice as much about music now as I did 10 years ago because of this ability. But then I rarely go and buy vinyl, but when I do, you know, it's a big deal and I enjoy it and my collection is not huge. So yeah, as long as you kind of treat them as beautiful sort of one-off objects, then, uh, you know, and not just sort of by everything that moves, I think you're okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think being discerning about it and making it a bit of a commitment to, you know, a certain record or artist that you really love, it separates it apart from everybody else in streaming. So there's a new song on there called Best Mistakes. There's a couple of things I want to quote from that just to lead into questions. A line from there, I did my time on the merry-go-round and if I had to choose between then and now, I'd choose now. I do get this impression of you very content in your life in rural Ireland. Yeah, that's a bit what it's like. I mean, the contentedness, well, that's it's whatever day you talk to me on. We're all kind of subject to the whims of, you know, the day. And some days I'm kind of pretty annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, some mornings you think, do the pigs have to make that much noise? They're going to get the food if they just, you know, have patience. But, you know, other days it's like, what a crazy sort of uh, <laughs> fascinating home I have. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the premium British audio brand. Bowers & Wilkins loudspeakers are trusted by some of the world's leading recording studios, including Abbey Road. It's a pleasure to have Bowers & Wilkins supporting the show. I picture you as the distant pop star, literally and metaphorically speaking, in that life that you have now. Well, distant, yes. Pop star, I don't know if I still am. I feel like I'm a, a musical entity. To be honest, you know, back, back in sort of the early 2000s, I thought, well, you know, the pop star bit is probably on the way out. And that's okay. I, I had a lot of trouble trying to sort of get used to it. 
But once I had got used to it, it was actually very freeing to not have to sort of keep the public profile going and to sort of bring out the sort of song that was going to sort of be chart worthy. Because very rapidly, the songs that I wanted to write would not be played on the radio. And I've kind of been lucky over the last 10, 15 years to have songs that would get played on the radio every now and again. So I don't consider myself really a pop star anymore. I'm a singer and a a writer. Yeah. Well, I want to explore that because I think that is so pivotal to you, as you say, still having songs on the radio. You kind of cross that Rubicon in a way. But just another line from Best Mistake. I've thumbed the dog-eared pages of my paperback life, reread confusing passages that never worked out right. I mean, Neil, which bits didn't work out? It seems like everything kind of fell into place. The things that didn't work out, you would never know about. You know, it's like the little relationships, uh, you know, between people you work with or that you know. You know, there are certain elements of what happened in the 90s that were pretty kind of sad, really, that people couldn't see beyond sort of the petty bickering of the time, you know? You know, on the whole, the name of the album uh, (laughs) is kind of a reflection of how I feel. I think I've been really lucky, as you'll always hear in sport, you know, I feel like I've made my own luck to a degree by just sort of forgetting about the things that didn't work and getting on with it and not sort of grumbling too much. So, uh, yeah, no, it's all been good, uh, apart from the bits that haven't, which you probably will never know about. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely fine. All water under the bridge, as they say. I mean, I, I sort of first came up with the idea for doing, exploring this narrative, this kind of career with the odd commercial and creative juxtapose that you have to navigate in the music industry from a quote by Brett Anderson. It was that all successful artists have followed a similar journey comprising four stages. The struggle, the stratospheric rise to the top, the crash to the bottom, and then the renaissance, which is a kind of a very 90s narrative arc for music, a kind of boom and bust. How much do you recognize that journey in your own career? I think it's there, although it's the heights and the shallows are, well, the heights and the valleys are shallower in my experience than perhaps his or or others. I didn't hit a stratospheric a height as Suede ever did, you know. To be honest, they were sort of just that sort of little, that sort of four years maybe ahead of me. And uh, they got it together a lot better than I did, you know. They were a proper band. They excited the hell out of me when uh, they first uh, came into being. And I think a lot of people point to them as the beginning of Britpop, really, that uh, when before a lot of uh, sort of indie bands had been very much just sort of staring at their feet and making a cool noise or looking to America and sort of being grungy, they were so British, you know, uh, from, from the off and kind of made this incredibly cool, glamorous sound. Yeah, making the suburbs glamorous. That is, that's a British thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and I loved it. I really did. And, and we actually supported them. We were third on the bill after, no, we weren't supporting them. We were supporting uh, Carter <laughs> in the oh, New wow. Cross venue in 1990. Wow. Carter, Suede, and us. 
Okay. And uh, I remember Brett sort of running down during sound check to the sound desk and going, no, I want the delay on my voice to be just a little longer. You know, I thought how cool that he actually knows what delay is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, as you say, that sort of paved the way for your, I don't know whether it sort of influenced how you got in the charts, but there was a wave there of Britpop that you were on for a bit or alongside. I just wondered in the early days, how much of a struggle for you was it? Because you, I think you fired your first band. The second band fell apart. You had a few releases that didn't go anywhere. So what, I mean, that took a while for you to get, to get going. I mean, the band stuff, well, I could go into the ins and outs of who got fired and who just left, but it would be very boring. You know, the, the most important point was when my first sort of incarnation uh, when the two other guys, they just kind of were fed up of living in a horrible place in, in Tottenham, you know, and we weren't seemingly getting anywhere. So they left and I thought, okay, that's cool. I went back home and I, uh, you know, just sort of got my head down and it was all about the writing for, um, when I say home, I mean my parents' house. <laughs> Thank you very much, mum and dad. I wrote the first two proper albums, you know, in the attic there. And I was seeing everything happening around me and getting very, very jealous. <laughs> and um, when I went back to London, it was kind of just on a wing and a prayer and uh, sort of made liberation in like a week uh, on my own. And, you know, like 3,000 people bought it. And I thought I was a pop star. That was incredible to me that 3,000 people had gone into a shop, seen the record and bought it. That changed everything. I, th I think uh, I, I knew that I was on the right trajectory from then on because it was very much me. The music was totally what I wanted to do. It wasn't really aping anybody else. So, you know, from there, it was just a question of getting a few people together to sort of play it and, you know, did the odd support thing. Yeah, I mean, it was a struggle just living because I was just getting bunged a few quid by the record company boss and uh, living in terrible, terrible places in London. But I never sort of felt too put upon. I didn't feel like, oh, uh, I wish I could sort of live in a palace. Uh, it was all just part of getting on with it. I was terribly, terribly uh, ambitious, really. Yeah. Um, you know, both in terms of getting on top of the pops, <laughs> but also in terms of the music and ambitious for sort of getting my vision to come true, really. Yeah. I'm really curious about you doing so much of those first two records on your own. I mean, okay, you know, people were fired or, or left the band or whatever and left you to it. But with everything that you had going on with those, with those compositions, the arrangements, writing the song, playing many of the instruments, just pulling it all together. Okay, you had the ambition, you were driven on, you, you wanted a part of that success, but you were digging deep as well, weren't you, to do it all on your own? Yes, I mean, it was, uh, it was partly that I didn't know very many people you know, I, I was much shyer then than I am now, and I'm not great now. <laughs> but more that I just didn't trust anybody else, really, to sort of do what I wanted. So, yeah, they were very much studio records. When I think of Casanova, that was the moment where 
well, basically, Keith Cullen from Satanta had come into some money because Edwin Collins had had his big hit uh, with A Girl Like You. And so he was willing to let me stay in the studio for longer. And um, I had what I thought was my Sergeant Peppers, you know. <laughs> and it was all a question of just, well, I'd made a very good friend in Joby Talbot uh, in the recording of Promenade. He was brought along by the cello player, Chris Worsey. And Joby, he ostensibly was like the sort of oboe player for that session. But it turned out he was a great pianist and he had sort of, he was studying at the Guildhall uh, composition. Uh, and I thought, well, he's a good guy to know. And I also really liked him a lot. He told amazing stories. So I kind of used, I, even on Casanova, though, I was writing the, the sort of string lines and the brass lines with a tinny little Yamaha keyboard and recording them onto my four track. And then I gave him the tapes and said, you know, just do this. And he'd kind of take that and make it proper. <laughs> and so it was kind of just grubbing around. And, I, and luckily I'd found out. <laughs> it was the George Martin of your Sergeant Pepper. A little bit, yeah. And um, luckily, uh, the engineer I'd used since Liberation, Darren Allison, he also played the drums. So it gave me that ability to just sort of get things together in my own time. It's a crazy sounding record. And that's probably why people liked it, because it didn't sound like anything else. And that's not particularly because I didn't want it to sound like anything else. It's just because I didn't really know how to make records. Yeah, it's a nice story because you had a few things come together there. Obviously, you had the, the 3,000 people who bought Liberation. That's affirmation enough. And then you had the little break there, courtesy Ed, Edwin Collins, just giving you that little bit of leeway on the label, I guess. Didn't you have some early success in France as well? Yes, on um, our second album, Promenade, which was equally lo-fi, but it was very arty. You know, it was like very sort of Michael Nyman orientated. Yes, the French really took me to their hearts uh, uh, in, a, in a very small indie way. You know, it was the French magazine, Les Arrocs who kind of championed me over there. And um, suddenly we were able to do a proper tour, uh, you know, under, uh, well, we, we did a lot of supports as well. It really helped because Partly because it gave me the confidence and it also, well, I had some success with the ladies in France for the first time in my life. And I, I basically was a rock star in my own head suddenly. Uh, and it's amazing what a bit of sort of, you know, confidence uh, in a romantic sense can do for your confidence in, in, in music as well. <laughs> yeah. And there's something about having that success in France as well for some, I guess, for obvious yeah, reasons in a sense. Because I'd always sort of been a Europhile and um, I enjoyed a lot of French music, although I didn't know the half of it, to be honest. I know a lot more about it now than I did then. Was that the beginnings of, of your fandom of Europop? Not really. I, I'd kind of sort of been keeping my eye on it, you know, since I was a teenager. I was a sponge, you know, when I was a teenager and I was just watching and listening to anything I could uh, to sort of work out if there was music out there that I should know about. And um, it's how I came to Scott Walker and then through Scott to Jacques Brel, the Belgian song singer-songwriter, who was a massive, massive influence on my writing, Jacques Brel. Just sort of 
his songs were so thrilling and so exciting and so sort of melodramatic and yet sort of involved a lot of real kitchen sink, gritty sort of life. And that blew my mind. I loved it. So uh, all of these things sort of went, went along hand in hand, really. I mean, Europop, it was much maligned at that period when you were making those records. But it's amazing now. You've kept up with it, haven't you? Because you did your radio show yeah. on that as well. And yeah, I mean, I think it's actually incredible, a lot of the pop music that's coming out of all over Europe. It's really interesting. I think uh, sort of it's been democratized over the last, you know, 10 years or so by just the, the ability to sort of stream anything, anytime, anywhere. And I, I think, um, well, just have to look at sort of hits like, uh, you know, was it Tilted that um, Christine and the Queens? Yeah, it? yeah, of course. Yeah, Christine and the Queens. And, yeah. you know, it didn't matter that she was French. It was just incre- incredibly cool. Absolutely. Rosalia, incredible yeah, yeah. music that she's making. Yeah, I, I did a, a compilation, actually. I called it Alternative Eurovision because it was just, I was just getting a, a bit sort of frustrated about our picture of Euro pop being still that slightly caricatured version. Yeah. Yeah. Old fashioned idea of like, Oh, well, they can never be as cool as us. You know, in fact, you know, when, when the French and the Italians and the Germans have got it right, they've been 10 times cooler than us. You know, (laughs) (laughs) They just have an awful lot of schlock to get through. You know, there's, you know, Italy has far too much sort of, wizened old old balladeers with like massive sort of 80s drum sounds and that's not good yeah no it's a good point younger more modern musicians yeah they have to battle their way with through all of that i guess to get on the radio in the in their own countries keith here thanks for listening to the art of longevity i hope you're enjoying the conversation so far please tell your friends listen back to the other episodes And don't forget to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Back to the conversation. So back to Casanova, basically, because that was the stratospheric rise to the top of this gentle roller coaster that you were on. More gentle gentle than suede, which is not a bad thing. And you were championed by Chris Evans with something for the weekend. I remember him just playing that constantly everywhere and that was so it was a kind of overnight success i guess you know a few years in the making yeah it it, it did happen very quickly when it happened finally you know there was just like a month where it went from complete obscurity and nothing in my diary to i had to take a eurostar back from paris just to do zig and zag, you know, on, on the big breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd take a Eurostar back to the next show. And I thought, it's happening. <laughs> it's fantastic. When you're in the company of zig and zag, I mean, that, God, they were brilliant. I, I enjoyed that. Um, but I noticed I, I looked through my old diaries, uh, sort of scheduling diaries, when I was putting together the, the box set. And... Um, the difference just, you know, between one year and the next, like suddenly I, I didn't have a day to myself for the next three years. And um, it drove me mad. But I, w- I was thinking, well, you've got to sort of have your mad unhinged period, you know. And um, I came out the other side. 
You did. How much did you enjoy the top of the curve? Because that was fame for that time. Yeah, although I was never that recognized, you know. It was only awkward if I was like at a musical event, you know. Walking down the street or on the tube or something, uh, you know, get recognized every now and again, but and generally only if I was in the vicinity of Camden. I didn't ever sort of hit those heights of like can't go out of the house or anything like that, for which I'm really grateful now. I think um, I have just about the the right amount of notoriety. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's again, that's just I think a nice part of your story. But when you followed up Casanova, it wasn't one of those situations where you were just obliged or asked to make more hits. You made a short album about love, which was recorded live. Not an obvious move. I, I mean, did Satanta and Keith Cullen have something to say about that at the time? Because you started to sort of bankroll Satanta with, with Casanova. Only when he saw the bill for the orchestra. <laughs> well, exactly. And not exactly a commercially leaning venture. Well, no. I mean, it was for me in terms of, well, the art of longevity. I had read my How to Be a Pop Star handbook well. I knew that once you have a hit or and then a few hits, you've got to keep the ball rolling and you cannot afford to let it go off the ball, a boil. I'd watched The Stone Roses not bring out an album for four years. And by the time they came back, it, it was very hard for people to care, you know? Um, not that I was ever in that level, but Basically, I had another bunch of songs. I always had another bunch of songs at the time. You know, they were sort of pouring out of me. I said, uh, instead of just sort of touring more and kind of then going in the studio next year, you know, and then maybe another album coming out after two years, let's just use the the gigs we've got lined up for, you know, this uh, sort of autumn to record another record and the short album was a brilliant idea because it meant I didn't have to make a full album you know <laughs> um and uh, and we got it out for Valentine's Day in the, that February and had another hit with everybody knows except you it did not make anybody any money but the, that was not the, my sort of real ambition at the time the ambition was to just make get the music made i mean to be honest, money, it was lovely when it came along, but it was never my sort of primary motivation. It was always being allowed to make the records I wanted to make and a modicum of adulation, you know, <laughs> fan worship. That, that never goes amiss, you know. When the money came in, I, I was almost surprised. I was like, <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. But it took a few years for it to actually start coming. I mean, even after, and I'm going to get the pronunciation of this wrong, but um, fin de siècle. Very, very good. Fin, 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 fin de siècle. Fin de siècle. Very good. It's a lot better than Robbie ever managed. <laughs> <laughs> which is, it struck me as the record in which you sort of really hit your stride. I mean, it, you know, you've got everything in there in terms of your influences. And by the way, I have to ask you, because I love Thrill Seeker on that record. Is there an, is there an Alice in Chains influence in there? or It's more Metallica, to be honest, okay. or Faith No More. 
Faith No More would be a very... I mean, I don't like really any of these bands. No, I mean, it's, it, it was a very big surprise, but I mean, I, I liked it. <laughs> it was a thrill. Yeah, I mean, listening to it now, I think, really? Do you not think you could have just sung it in your own voice? But, you know, I, I did what I did back then, and I sort of stand by my 26-year-old self. I, I knew what I was doing, and I... By Jingo, I got it done. Yeah. Fantasy Eckler is a crazy sort of pink elephant of an album. It's just like, it's got it all and too much of everything. It's got choirs. It's got, you know, anvils on Sweden. It's, it's got sort of five minute long sort of uh, sample wig out on the end of Eric the Gardener. Yeah, which I love as well. I like all that stuff. When I listen back to that album, I just think I was almost like a different person. I was like, I mean, I was never really into drugs, uh, so this was all just my own sort of hallucinogens in my brain kind of forming crazy ideas. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, National Express was obviously the big hit from the album, but the record company didn't sort of share my enthusiasm for it. <laughs> well, it's, it falls into a, a great tradition of no one really being able to spot the single. Or, or the big single. Well, I could it became spot your biggest. <laughs> well, sometimes it's the artist, sometimes it's the label. It does seem like either way, someone's got to convince someone else that that's going to be the song. Well, I, I always remember, you know, uh, Paul McCartney having to convince people that Marlowe Kintyre was a hit. And not only was it a hit, it was at number one for like five weeks, you know? And so somebody's going to correct me on how long it was number one for. It was nine weeks, actually. Was it nine weeks? It was a very long time. But then silly things like Wet, Wet, Wet came along. <laughs> so what were we talking about? <laughs> National Express. I was going to sort of make a, a stupid pun about the money obviously wasn't rolling in then because what were you doing traveling on the National Express as a, as a national pop star? But I'm glad you did because it was suitable inspiration for a, your biggest hit. Well, uh, you see, I've all, I've never had a problem with keeping songs to one side if I don't think they fit on a record at the time. And I wrote it, I started writing it around the Casanova time, and it didn't get on the record for another two years till Fantasy Eckler, like two albums later, because I knew I knew I was onto something with it. I just hadn't really sort of nailed it down. The thing that I've noticed sort of over the years and listening to it back repeatedly when we were sort of remastering it is just how brilliantly recorded it is by John Jacobs. It could have been terrible, <laughs> you know, it could have really failed. I mean, certainly, you know, listening to Charmed Life on vinyl, I mean, everything sounds pretty lush and it's, it's beautifully produced. So it was important for those songs to come out sounding well. And in a way, they had to be produced to a certain sort of standard of what was happening at the time. I mean, yeah, there was a, was a lot of production and well-produced music coming out at the time, right? Absolutely. And, you know, artists tend to have silly ideas about production. They'd say, I want to do it in mono, so it's like, you know, pet sounds. And you're thinking, oh, I'm sure the engineers are just, I can almost see them sighing, even though they're looking the other way at the desk, you know, <laughs> you can see the shoulders yeah, go down. Yeah, this is not going to end well. <laughs> I know. 
Well, again, on National Express, I wanted to ask you about humour in song, because I had Ed Robertson on a few series ago, actually, Bare Naked Ladies. We had a similar chat, because it. I've always considered it a huge risk, because music isn't very funny, and very few people can get away with it. So at what point did you feel like you wanted to express humour? The first thing to say is that it's not like you know, stand-up comedy humor. It's and it's not it's not even jokes generally. It's like silly stuff that is almost made funny by the context that it's in. I mean, I was a massive 80s Smiths and Morrissey fan. He was probably the best lyricist ever. <laughs> you know, it was astounding to me how he could say such sort of moving things and just with immense sort of uh, comic timing and irony. And so the, I was sort of reading from his handbook to a degree and various other people who I'm struggling to think of. But I like that sort of mild Alan Bennett kind of humor. Yeah, or I, I always loved when I was a kid watching... Peter Ustinov or David Niven on Parkinson telling sort of long, mildly amusing anecdotes, you know? <laughs> and that's sort of more my style. The arse the size of a small country gag at the end of National Express, I don't think it's particularly funny. I think it's just like a good way to end a verse, <laughs> you know? And it's kind of got a bit of a punch on the beat and it gets you into the chorus really well. Yeah, uh, people telling me, uh, you know, that it's the best joke ever. I, I just don't agree. No, I, I agree. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, but you couldn't get away with it today. Well, I keep, I keep singing it, and people <laughs> don't arrest me. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, as you say, there's a gentleness, playfulness to it all. It's not like people are going to drag you over the coals about, you know, a lyric. I mean, they're doing that to Elvis Costello because he wrote all of his army in '78, '79. It was a different time. But you do have to write for the times, don't you? It was a different time. And I, and you know, with that line about the Arabs, it's like it's satire and he is satirizing the army guy he's having this conversation with. And it's when people take these things on face value that the artists themselves, well, it's coming out of their mouths. So this must be what they believe. Yeah. Well, that's the death of art right there. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Do you have a slightly different mindset or do you consider it more these days when you're writing about what it is you can say? Sadly, yes. I think I, I get away with stuff more because sort of exist a little bit sort of outside of the sort of mainstream and maybe not many people are looking, you know? Which is a good place to be. Yeah. But I think, you know, as long as your heart's in the right place, you use ways to describe situations that sometimes you need to be brutal. Sometimes you need to sort of say things that might make people uncomfortable just to get the, your point across. But as long as you're doing it with a you know clean conscience and a good heart, then I think that's important. And I will try to keep doing that to my dying day because... I, I'm not one of these people who thinks that sort of, uh, you know, woke is destroying comedy or uh, music and everything. 
you know, the sort of Me Too movement was like, well, that's about time, you know? Yeah, I mean, if it's a creative boundary, then it's a good creative boundary to work within, right? Yeah, and also people have got to remember what art is for. And pop music is art if you want it to be art, you know? And you've got to remember that it's for communication and for sort of, and it's not just for dancing. <laughs> and it's not, it's not for sort of necessarily saying what you mean all the time. It, it's for sort of uh, trying to sort of uh, let you walk in somebody else's shoes for a little bit. Absolutely. And, you know, is, I mean, for music fans as well as the people who make it, it's a life affirming thing, right? Exactly. It has to sort of talk about all of life and not just sort of the bits that make everybody feel good. The Art of Longevity is a team effort. The show is produced by the Song Sommelier, that's me, with Project Melody. It's audio engineered and edited by Audio Culture. Our amazing cover art is by the wonderful Mick Clark. And original music for the show is by Andrew James Johnson. I want to come to regeneration just briefly because it was a bit of a step to the side. And in fact, in a way, a bit more serious. I love that record personally. And and Nigel Godrich came in, so he was obviously influential in the way it sounds. Tell me a bit about how you reflect on that record now. Well, it was the next step. We had decided to leave Satanta and there was a little bit of a I wouldn't say a bidding war, but, you know, there were various sort of major labels trying to get us, which was lovely. And I thought only right. I was ready for the next step up. It was literally just a sort of a a confluence of of things that maybe didn't pan out. Like um, I just got married. We'd got a a house in Muswell Hill and it was uh, being re- well, redesigned because I had all this money. I suppose I, th- I think I need a, a bookcase that is actually a door, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, um, <laughs> oh God, what an idiot. Uh, but I didn't sort of have a studio to work in. So what I did, I was just writing songs on the acoustic guitar down at the bottom of the garden. <laughs> so it's a very much a written on an acoustic guitar kind of album. I didn't have the, ability to sort of work these up as like sort of sort of real divine comedy arrangements and also i thought well i'm going to take this as an opportunity i have this great band that has been my band for like four years i like them all i think they're all good musicians let's see what they would do and i thought well i'm on a major label now let's get the best producer in the world in you know because we can Luckily, Nigel liked my stuff. He didn't like the way any of it was recorded, and he told me so quite brutally. He probably says that to everybody. (laughs) I think he does. Yeah, he came in and sort of deconstructed everything. I felt suddenly all at sea, you know. I'd just sort of play computer games upstairs while he sort of got people to lay down their parts. Eventually, he he came up to me and said, you do know that this is your record as well. (laughs) I think I was very sort of secretly very stressed about what was going on and very nervous that I was, I didn't know what was going on because in all the previous records I had, I had known in minute detail 
every single part that was going down and why it was happening because I demoed it all beforehand. So regeneration was a completely different animal. And as it went on, we got sort of a new sound going and it was great. You know, it was different. The problem was when we brought it out that obviously the fans were expecting one thing and we were giving them another. And we didn't necessarily sort of reach a new sort of uh, fan base either. So we were kind of caught between two stools. As it turns out, it sold as many as the previous records. It just didn't sort of take us to a new level. I look back now thinking, okay, that, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? it, was, it was a very intriguing move at the time because, as you say, step up to a major and it was Parlophone. So you're on the same label as Radiohead and Coldplay and all of that gang. And then actually make a record that was in a very different direction was a, just a, a huge risk, really, especially at the end of the 90s or yeah, beginning of the noughties, in fact. But it was also a huge risk to do the same again because Britpop was over and all of the magazines were saying, Britpop is over and we don't care about you anymore. The, the NME wouldn't interview me. <laughs> you know, It was very kind of brutal how they had decided we're on to the next thing. You can go now. Yeah, so you went through that. That's interesting because at some point you managed to, I think you said you came out the other side. I mean, much of that is through continuing to make really good songs. Our Mutual Friend, Lady of a Certain Age, To the Rescue. These songs that you've made since are among your best. And a lot of fans believe that, you know, some of those songs to be your best. So is that the secret, essentially, to, to be able to keep knocking out great songs? I mean, do you know when you've got a song that's going to keep you connected to a, a wider audience? I feel like I do. You never quite know. But uh, I remember sort of sitting uh, in the control room in Abbey Road while the orchestra were sort of laying down their part of Our Mutual Friend, which is basically the entire song, really. You know, between myself and Joby, we'd sort of knocked it out of the park. (laughs) And I was sitting there thinking, well, this is the best thing I've ever done, you know. And I think I was right to, up to that point. <laughs> so that was the album after Regeneration, Absent Friends, where I, I had literally gone, okay, I have to sort of change things right now or else I'm doomed. And I let the band go. It wasn't their fault at all. You know, it was just what I needed to do to refresh the whole thing. And I, sort of went back to the source. I thought, I'm going to make the record that makes me happy and no one else, you know? <laughs> and that was like pure sort of 60s orchestral pop, you know, with the usual kind of layers of uh, contemporary classical and and sort of golden age British pop. And they kind of uh, make make it sound the way I love it to sound. Yeah. And I think it got me back on course, you know, and it was pretty much, it wasn't plain sailing, but it was a lot easier after that to know sort of, this is what you do. And, you know, you don't have to sort of, you don't have to go looking for a public, you know, they will come to you. 
I was wondering about that. I sort of had a hypothesis that that was the moment that your longevity was kind of secured in a way. Uh, You might be right, yeah. And commercially, it was quite pivotal as well because that was round about the time you acquired your master's back. So, And then you released your future records on Divine Comedy Records, which has kind of become the mold that every artist wants to get to. Well, um, it wasn't quite like that. When we left Satanta, that's when we got the masters of the Satanta era because we were owed quite a lot of money. And so we took the masters in lieu of that money. Okay. And it's turned out, I think we've probably, that's done better for us than it would have done otherwise. And then uh, we made another album for Parlophone after Absent Friends, the victory for the comic muse. Uh, but, you know, around that time, it was when the whole industry was going tits up <laughs> and everybody was panicking. It was like rats leaving a sinking ship. <laughs> well, it was. In fact, I think that's when Terra Firma bought EMI. So they would, they would have, I mean, a banker then took over Parlophone Records, effectively. I know. Insane. And I mean, we just sort of, uh, Natalie, my manager and myself, uh, agreed to go to Parlophone and say, is it all right if we leave? <laughs> but pretty much before we got pushed, you know, because we wanted to do it on our own terms. And they went, okay, yeah. <laughs> wow. So it was, a, a, you know, a mutual decoupling. But then, you know, then it was pretty hard. We had to decide whether to go to another label, and we decided not to. We sort of made our little Divine Comedy Records label, which only releases our stuff. And, you know, the first uh, sort of five years of that was pretty hard going to try and sort of make it economically viable. But we got there and it's now so much easier than it ever was on a record label. It's just like, uh, it's quite a relief to be able to sort of not waste money on stupid stuff and spend it in the right places. Yeah, as I say, you kind of accidentally or yeah, partly accidentally and partly just making a good decision on instinct at the time, you've kind of arrived at the model that most artists would like to to get to. It was still around the time when it was sort of pretty unfashionable, but it, you know, and I was kind of nervous. It made me think of people sort of self-publishing their autobiography, you know, their yeah, memoirs and yeah. things like that. Um, but as it turns out, it's not like that really. It's just sort of, you know, you're still basically doing it like you used to do it, you know, uh, with independent sort of companies sort of distributing your your records and kind of independent publicists publicizing them, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just, you're the ones at the sort of center of it all saying what happens rather than a, a label. You have control and you get more of the rewards, I guess. I mean, owning your catalogue, have the corporate raiders knocked on your door and made you offers for your catalogue? <laughs> Would you consider it? Um, oh, we've had a few offers, but, you know, it's always like, what's the point? You know, it's fine where it is, you know, and it's, it's good. It um, ticks over nicely. I am not the wealthiest person in music. I don't need to be. I've always said if, if I had... If I'd not wasted my money on orchestras, I'd have a lot more money, but I would just spend it on orchestras. So, you know, (laughs) having said that, Office Politics, our last album, was a very different animal. But I suppose I've just sort of given myself the freedom to to do what I feel like. Yeah. 
Now, I know we don't have too much time left. I just want to come back to now, really, because you've worked on, if I, I think you've completed the prequel to the Willy Wonka movie. That's all done and dusted. We just have to wait for it to come out. But presumably that was a bit of a dream project, wasn't it, for right now? Yeah. I mean, the wait is interminable. It's, uh, I, I was finished that sort of late last year. And um, I suppose I'll be involved when they do the sort of finished orchestrations and things uh, this autumn, which I'm looking forward to greatly. It was a dream job. I joke that it was all part of the master plan that my young fans from, you know, back in the day have grown up and attained positions of power, <laughs> cultural power. And now they come back and go, oh, let's get Hannon to write the songs. Well, you've got to stay on the bus. So that's part of longevity. And then it starts to sort of, you start to stop off at some quite interesting places that you might, where you recognize a few people. I know. I mean, I have never gone looking for stuff i don't think it's possible either people want you or they don't yeah. you know every now and again i get a very interesting phone call and i get excited yeah uh, because i absolutely adore the songs from the first the early 70s movie anthony newley leslie brickus absolute masters of the art yeah and so to try to try and come up to that standard was a tall order but I think I've got a, a bit of the way. Yeah, there was one big hit in that, so you've you've got it fits your mold. You've just got you just got to get a big hit out of it. That's equivalent oh, to candy. Man. I mean, I have mild heart failure whenever anybody <laughs> when I think of how people might react to it. I, you know, some people might think it's dreadfully old fashioned, but you know, this is what I like. And this is obviously what Paul King, the director, likes also. <laughs> yeah, well, there's something about when you tr revisit the tradition of a classic movie and try and modernize it. Obviously, they didn't get it right when they remade Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Mm. But I think it's a better time to do that now. There's some. I think there is more of an appreciation of the era, in a way. I, I don't know why I say that, but I just feel it's true. Maybe it's because of all the stuff on Netflix. I mean, if people are looking for Frozen or, or The Greatest Showman, they will be bitterly disappointed. But hopefully they'll like it in a different way. Yeah, I don't think you could write The Greatest Showman. I couldn't. Couldn't in a million years. I don't understand that music at all. <laughs> it's the kind of good that is bad. It's so bad, it's good. That's why okay. people like it. Okay. okay, look, Neil, it's been fantastic to talk to you. I just want to ask you sort of, you know, now that you've arrived at this place and we've talked about the journey, you kind of reached national treasure status effectively in your own quiet nation? way. <laughs> <laughs> All of our island nations. A couple of islands worth, yeah. And maybe a bit of France. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah absolutely. To keep us together. What's next? Are you just waiting for whatever is the next offer to come in? I mean, Father Ted's supposed to be on the horizon at some point, isn't it? I mean, what is what would you like to do next if you did go looking for it, or you thought that would be nice if it came knocking? After about three years of constant nostalgia, I am very, very ready to just sit on my own and make a, a thing for myself, whether that's an album or I don't know what. I get sort of antsy after a while and I feel like, oh, everybody go away, leave me alone. I just want to make some nice music that I like. Not that I don't like all the other things I do. It's just there for them. And this is for me. And I need sort of to always sort of make divine comedy records. 
every now and again just to stay sane. <laughs> I think that'll be really good for a lot of people to hear. Oh, good. <laughs> That's a relief. Because I don't think I could stop. Whether anybody sort of will be buying them when I'm 73, I don't know. But... That's a funny idea, isn't it? Making little records when you're 73. <laughs> you know, I think the kind of music that you make and that you've always wanted to make, but now you're just allowed to because of where you've got yourself, it ages well. Well, it might get weirder with age. That's all I'll say. Because I feel less need as I go along to sort of get the next radio hit, you know? I can't waste time just sort of trying to bland myself out to sort of suit sort of mainstream. So I'd rather go the opposite direction. I hope nobody minds. Well, I was thinking of, you know, something like Life on Earth. You know, you made a record like that way, way back in 98, but it would have, if you were to make records like that now, it would have more significance, wouldn't it? Yes, I think so. Yeah, Life on Earth is a very pivotal song, I think, in the catalogue, because I was really sort of learning from the old-timers, the 50s, 40s, 50s songwriters, really trying to do that and not sort of make it sound modern. I don't think it was particularly successful. It was, it's a nice song, but it sort of drags on a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I feel like it's just sort of a, a good one, sort of a signpost on, on the pathway. Okay. Well, Neil, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Good luck with the second half of the tour. And I, I know you're touring again in, in the autumn. So look forward to seeing you then. Thanks very much for, uh, for joining us in the Art of Longevity. Pleasure. We'll see you soon. Cheers. Cheers, Neil. Bye. <laughs>